Hello and welcome to David M. Green and other famous people. I'm David M. Green. Thanks for joining me. Or whatever you've done to start this playing. Maybe it happened automatically. Sometimes you hit play on your computer and it starts playing like the wrong window. So if that's happened, just bear with me. Um, what is this all about? I've, I've been doing radio and TV for many years now and about time I gave something back. So, you know, throughout the years, I've, I've talked to a lot of other famous people, like myself, and um, I thought, you know, it might be about time that I put all these together in some sort of thing uh, that's, you know, convenient for people to, to listen to. You know, who wants to go to my website, davidmgreen.com, and tediously search through all the links? Just, just go to iTunes and type in celebrities, David M. Green comes right at the top of the list. We've got good search engine optimization going. So for this very special episode one of uh, David M. Green and other famous people, I thought I'd bring you uh, an interview that I did back in 2006 with one of, one of my favorite comedians, Tony Martin. Big, uh, big fan of his. So it was back on, check on the notes, back on 14th of September 2006. At the time I was working in, a uh, living in Adelaide. <laughs> working? <laughs> no. Uh, I, no, I was unemployed. In fact, I was studying psychology at Flinders University and I was doing... Flinders University Student Radio. I had a show called The Green Room, and all this broadcast on Radio Adelaide, 101.5 FM, which is still there. Flinders Uni Student Radio isn't. I saw to the end of that. Uh, but anyway, so I got to talk to Tony Martin. It was a phone interview, and it was, um, it was about six months into his fantastic Triple M radio show, Get This, which I was a huge fan of. And at, at the time, it was on at 9am in Adelaide, and I would wake up to it and listen to it on my way into uni, which was... Fantastic. And then I think the next year it changed to like 1 p.m. in Adelaide. And I, I was still listening to it on my way into uni. I'd sort of stopped going to morning lectures. Uh, but anyway, here he is, Tony Martin. And me with him as well. Well, I'd like to welcome to the green room, Mr. Tony Martin. Thanks very much. It's a very nice room. What was your initial reaction when you discovered the green room wanted to interview you? Oh, well, obviously, pens down and uh, clear up space in the diary. <laughs> I love the green room. You are a radio man, uh, of course. You've got your show, uh, Get This, on Triple M at the moment. Yeah, it's still on. Uh, when this was recorded, it was still on anyway. <laughs> yeah, I used to listen to it uh, more when it was on at 9am here in Adelaide, but of course they moved it to 5pm because they can't find someone talented to do a drive show here. <laughs> well, they just like to keep us a moving target. just keeps people on their toes. I'm actually not sure what that was about, but... Um it was uh, out of my control. It's only one hour, though. That's not really... Is that, a, that would be enough time to drive home, I'm assuming, in Adelaide. Yeah. Good. Yeah, most people. <laughs> I mean, I wish it was a two-hour show if, we'd, if we're on in drive, but sadly, um, it's not. You can just cram all the best stuff into 60 minutes. Well, it's expanding out. We usually do a 75... We're doing kind of a 75-minute show now if you count all the songs we've dropped, but that's part of our plan is to... The more we talk, the less chance there is of um, Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire coming on. <laughs> yeah, my hours are 7 in the morning till half past 10 at night. <laughs> that's for a one-hour show. <laughs> and then you get in a cab and you get a lot of, so, mate, what do you do for the other 23 hours of the day? But it's, um, we do like to do a lot of sketches and, and pre-recorded bits and, you know, taping things off the TV. And, you know, you can spend hours taping television to get something that goes five seconds. And because we're national, we have to read all the newspapers. So it's, it's pretty full on. And you can spend six hours in the afternoon reading the papers and find, you know, one funny story about, 
you know, Robert Downey Jr. covered in imaginary rats. <laughs> That's it for the day. So, yeah, there is a lot of work involved. I mean, obviously, at some point, we could just stop doing all that production and just say, where's the weirdest place you've had sex? Call now. <laughs> that works for a lot of shows. But part of the problem of having a short show is there's actually more pressure for everything to be funny. Whereas if you do a three-hour shift... Um, you know, you can sort of potter along and, and it's sort of quantity can win out over quality if necessary, if you've had a, you know, if you've slept in. But in one hour, you've got to have a, at least a sketch in there and, you know, you, you can't muck around too much. Hmm. 30 minutes even more so, I would have thought. Yeah, i got to have two sketches. <laughs> two sketches? Yeah. What are today's? Well, I've, well, I've only got a weekly show. You know that, you, you see that Hungry Jack's ad with, um, for chicken wingettes? I've spent all my time looking for the KFC ad with Ed Cavalier in it. <laughs> oh man, this Hungry Jack's one—it's—it's it's not airing anymore. But there was this guy—he he like clucked like a chicken. It was the most annoying thing ever. So I had to, of course, insult it uh, on the air. Well, that's what our actors are reduced to, sadly. There would have Sigrid Thornton would have gone for that ad. <laughs> There's no actual work left. Well, take us right back, way back to when you first got into the entertainment industry. Where did it all start for you? The entertainment industry, Jesus. <laughs> Um, well, we didn't really have an entertainment industry in New Zealand when I was growing up, and because I wanted to do, you know, comedy and do silly voices and things like that, there wasn't even live comedy. People would just sit around for hours in New Zealand, desperately trying to think of something amusing. But um, there was amateur theatre. That's how I got in, basically via, you know, doing Alan Akebourne plays. <laughs> Having to do incredibly twee British comedy plays was the only way you could do comedy in public in New Zealand. And then I got into, despite my glasses and association with the degeneration, I never actually went to university. I drove a forklift <laughs> in an army surplus store for a year, did amateur theatre at night, and then got into an ad agency as a sort of shit kicker in the art department and um, then when one of the copywriters left uh, I became a copywriter and then just by an amazing coincidence as New Zealand's first FM radio station opened across the road from the ad agency I was working at <laughs> and the bloke who whose job I'd taken went over the road to work there and he was writing ads he needed someone to do silly voices so I just started going in doing silly voices in ads and then I somehow got a job. Is this too long and boring, by the way? No, no, I've Sing got out. I've um, got 30 minutes to fill. <laughs> okay, happy to help. <laughs> I just uh, got a job at another uh, radio station in Hamilton in New Zealand, actually two radio stations, writing 120 30-second commercials a week, most of which began with the phrase thinking about, <laughs> like, as in thinking about carpet, and when that sort of uh, wore out its welcome, I'd do a lot of, there's never been a better time <laughs> for buying carpet. And, it, you know, the great thing about getting in like that, and that's how most people I know seem to have gotten to radio. They've started out in the country somewhere, you know. Yeah, it's the same, it's the same like. here, I think. Yeah, so that's how I kind of started. I got in as a copywriter because I got to do all my own voices. I got to muck around in production. I did all my own production. This is like 83. And, um, you know, got to, got my own uh, late-night uh, comedy program where I just used to, you know, Get, they used to have these things at radio stations called interview records where David Bowie would um, record the answers to a whole lot of questions and then leave a gap for the questions and then the local announcer could fill in the questions and make it sound like he's got David Bowie in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> it 
right? So I found all those records and they had just hundreds of them and I just did fake documentaries where I would, you know, as I still do today, change all the questions <laughs> and uh, use all the answers. And that they... Um, that caught on, and that was the first thing I actually kind of became famous for on a very minor level in New Zealand. That was you? That You started that? Well, I, I'm sure I didn't invent it, <laughs> but I was the first person to, that anyone knew of who'd done it in that part of New Zealand. Oh. And so, it, but it just freaked people out because it was the early 80s and people would be going, oh, how did he get David Bowie to say that? <laughs> so that was kind of a minor sort of um, thing that I did, and then I got uh, a job at the sister station in uh, Brisbane, so I came across to Australia, and um, yeah, my visa is yet to be revoked. (laughs) Been here for 21 years. Well, uh, most people, a lot of people would remember you from your ABC variety show, The Late Show, back in the early 90s, and I've got the best bits on DVD, and it's provided many hours of entertainment. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I wish it was, you know, if we'd known it was going to be out on DVD this many years later, we would have, firstly, we would have worn better clothes, (laughs) and secondly, we probably would have, um, you know done it a bit better. It was all very rough around the edges. I mean, we, we didn't have any writers on that show. We used to write all our own material and do it, which is w- what we like to do. And But we were also editing it and filming a lot of it and sound post-producing a lot of our own sketches. So it was quite an exhausting kind of show. So it only went for two years. But for some reason, it's just, yeah, people still shout things from that show to me from moving cars almost every single day. <laughs> it wasn't even that popular when it was on. It was like the ratings were quite tiny. Well, I understand it was originally going to be a show on Channel 9 every weeknight. Yeah, yeah, they hired us to do um, a show called The Late Late Show. That's right, 1990, we got called up by Channel 9 and they wanted to, because David Letterman in America was doing a show that went out at like, you know, one thirty in the morning, and suddenly they could charge a lot of money for ads at that, you know, previously moribund time slot. So that's what they wanted us to do, was come up with a show that could go out four nights a week uh, at 11.30, and it was going to be called The Late Late Show. And we did it, and it was... We did five pilots for it, and pretty much everything we did in those pilots ended up being redone on The Late Show, but um, Kerry Packer didn't like it. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know, maybe we just didn't do enough renovating or <laughs> whatever you were supposed to do on Channel 9 in those days. Do you think, because um, like, tonight's shows like that do exist, like you said, there's Letterman and Conan O'Brien and Jon Stewart, but they're all American. Do you think Australia can actually support a weeknightly Tonight Show? I think, well, I think if you were doing a comedy, we were doing a comedy show, so there weren't like, I don't even think we were going to have guests, so it wasn't really like a Tonight Show, but um, I think the problem is, and you know, Steve Visard tried to, well, let's be honest, steal Dave Letterman's format a few years ago, and there's just not enough good guests, you know, to do a nightly show. You know, in America, you can have Jack Nicholson on one night, and you know... Mm. Albert Brooks the next night and here you know by week we used to call it the Elmer Loglu factor you're going to have to have Rebecca Elmer Loglu on (laughs) before too long and so we that was why the late show we called it a variety show but it wasn't it was a a written comedy show and uh, yeah I'm not sure I mean like yeah Rove is only on once a week and Hmm. he has to still wheel Kamal out on an office chair so (laughs) there's just obviously not enough guests for a nightly show like that but if you were doing a comedy show, you could certainly do it every night. It'd be good to see a show like that. Do you yeah. think you could possibly be the man to bring that to Australia? Um, I don't know. I mean, I've had a... In the last year before I did get this, I actually worked on four separate TV shows, all of which um, 
are now adorned with the uh, prefix ill-fated. You know, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not really... I don't know if I'm too old. <laughs> I'm not just already a Tony Martin on TV. I'm not sure. I'm having trouble getting back onto TV. But I would like to do something at some point. Hmm. Still keen on it. You know, there's no point in doing it if you're just doing it to be on TV. That's the worst reason to do it. But, you know, all of us have got quite a few good ideas we'd like to run up at some point. But then, again, at the same time, there's new younger people coming up. You don't want to just be hanging around too long, getting in everyone's way. But mm. certainly late at night, that's what appeals to me, because at late at night you can presumably get away with a lot more. I mean, I, I know guys who, who write for Rove, and they're really good comedy writers, and, you know, the problem is you, there's just certain jokes you can't do in that time slot. I think they should dress up Peter Hellier as uh, Truman Capote <laughs> and film a sketch where he, you know, goes to Moe to do an in-cold-blood-style book about the Domasavich uh, business. <laughs> To me, that would be a great sketch to do if you're on TV, and you had Peter Hellier, who looks exactly like Philip Seymour Hoffman. But do you think the, do you think the audience would understand yeah, it though? You get oh, oh the audience aren't going to know who Truman Capote is, and that's once you start doing things because the audience, you know, once you start doing it that way, you're on you're on a bad road, I think. I mean, on sure, get this is on Triple M, and we play Nickelback songs, and we, you know, we obviously are on, you know, we have ad breaks for Big Brother all the time, but once the actual show part starts, we we talk about, you know, Albert Camus, old Don Knotts movies. We, we don't worry about whether people have heard about it or not. We just, you know, as long as it's entertaining. Orson Welles, who used to do a fair bit of radio in his time, back in the 1940s, oh, yeah? he used to have a great saying, which was, it's not the... People can understand anything. There's, there's no concept you can present that people won't understand. It's, in, it's interesting people that's the hard part. So if, as long as you can interest people, you can go anywhere with them. Hmm. That's why we'll be playing uh, Which Animal Will You Steal From The Zoo tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have listened to your show. I uh, get this quite a lot. And I do recall you, you talk about uh, your favourite TV shows at the moment, uh, which I believe are Curb Your Enthusiasm, Arrested Development and The Mister Show. I love Mr. Show. Yeah, we love pretty much anything with HBO on the front of it is a good show. The Wire, Deadwood, The Sopranos, Six Feet Under. We love all that stuff. And it's, you know, Cooper Enthusiasm is shown at the glamour time of 2.15 in the morning. The thing is, whenever we mention it on our show, we get 100 emails from people, you know, quoting lines from it. So, Well, I think that it's, the, it's their only outlet. Yeah. Well, you know, I, you just... The trouble is you have to do... They're so desperate for ratings in prime time that you know unless something works from day one or two you know they just abandon it you know why did Cooper enthusiasm get taken off on sunday nights <laughs> why it wasn't rating high enough for a show that's going out at eleven thirty on a sunday night with no <laughs> promotion I, I don't understand their thinking in there well the, the mr show hasn't even hasn't even been on australian television you can't even buy the dvds here no it was on uh, the comedy channel on foxtel for a while pretty early in the morning but, yeah, that, you're right, it's not been on free-to-air TV. And, but almost everyone I know seems to have bought those DVDs or seen them or watched them on YouTube or something. It's a great I, show. Yeah, I know someone. I know someone, but I haven't seen them myself. You've got oh, to get onto that. Excellent. You've got to watch them from the beginning, though. It's fairly baffling if you just come in halfway. Yeah, well, it's like Arrested Development. You've you got to start from the beginning. Well, one of the guys in that is the two guys in Mr. Show are... Oh, David Cross and... Um, Cross is Delegate. And Bob Odenkirk, who used to be uh, Larry Sanders' manager on the Larry Sanders show. All right. For any of your older listeners. <laughs> but yeah, it's very frustrating. I mean, I you know I feel like I live in a parallel universe where uh, you know Deadwood is the best show on TV, <laughs> as opposed to you know 
McLeod's daughters. Well, you've been quoted uh, to say that you consider the McAuliffe program to be Australia's best sketch series. I think that, yeah, I reckon it is. I mean, it's, you know, every generation are slicker at making TV. You know, I remember we used to, you know, that we and the Late Show people, we used to look back at Artie Jack, which was the most celebrated, you know, sketch comedy show of the previous generation, and we go, yeah, it's sort of funny, but it, it's pretty slow and primitive now. <laughs> and I'm assuming that's what, you know, the people making... Um, I don't know. We can be heroes, think, when they look back at the Late Show because every generation gets slicker and slicker and better at using the equipment and talking in the language. And if you watch The Chaser Guys, they're doing quite a similar show to what we used to do, except they're all much more media savvy and they're faster and they're more professional than us. So I just think every generation just is is across the media more and knows how to use the tools a bit better. And they get more cynical as well. They do get more cynical. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with a bit of cynicism. Oh, no, there's nothing wrong with cynicism. I'm, I'm very cynical. <laughs> but, it, yeah, I know what you mean. I'm, as you can hear, I'm just... I'm only 42 and I'm already ready for that grumpy old men show. <laughs> but they're pretty good, the Chaser guys. I just wish they'd do a bit more acting. They need to, do, they need to develop an interest in acting, do some sort of character stuff in their sketches. Yeah, because they're always playing themselves, aren't they? Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's... I'm, you know, they don't need to do anything that I say. I don't mean it like that. <laughs> I just mean that <laughs> if you get interested in acting... Um, then you're going to have a longer career in comedy because, you know, you, you can't just do one thing forever. That's the problem. You've got to develop as many different interests as you can. Have you thought about getting in contact with The Chaser? Um, no, we actually want to get them on our show at some point to um, to just crap on with us. <laughs> but I think it's just... Um, I'm not sure if there's any politics between Triple M and, the, and those guys. They used to be on Triple M, Chris and Craig. I didn't know that. They were on, uh, yeah, before they went over to Triple J. So I don't know, but I'm a big fan of their show. Yeah, we'll get them in at some point. If we can ever get Greg Fleet out of our studio, <laughs> we'll get them in. Well, um, after the late show, you did, uh, you and Mick Malloy, uh, your longtime friend Mick Malloy, you got together on radio and did the very successful Martin Malloy show. And uh, this is probably what you're most well known for. Yeah. I, I recently interviewed Hamish Blake from Hamish and Andy fame. Oh, yeah, he works upstairs, yeah. Oh, well, he considers you to be, quote, a god. <laughs> because of Martin Malloy. What do you say to that? It's a pretty sad God, <laughs> if that's the case. Um, not re- I mean, no, it's just, it's just putting in the hours. That's all it was with that show. We just, Mick and myself don't have any children, um, and we were able to just spend t- pretty much 24 hours a day working on that show. It wasn't because we were geniuses or anything. It was just because we didn't sleep. It was just, you know, we would... Just stay up all night, writing sketches and you know getting on the. I mean, I would call Mick, you know, at two in the morning and play him some clip that I taped off the news. We were just severely into our own program. It wasn't that, um, you know, and a lot more of that, that show was uh, a lot more of it than people probably realised was written. We would we would you know get in at ten in the morning and and get the Spyrex books out and write a lot of stuff that I assume people thought we were just making up on the the spot, but. Um, yeah, I, there was just nobody else doing a show with that much sketch and production work in it. And it is it does take a long time, and people in radio don't really have the patience to sit down and spend six hours producing something that runs one minute fifty. But And so when we stopped doing that show, I assumed everyone would just... There would be a lot more shows on. There were a lot of shows on where there were two blokes uh, crapping on, but they weren't, you know, throwing just elaborate sketches and song parodies and things, which is what I'm still doing on this program. Well, back on Martin Malloy, uh, you did a sketch called Blast FM. Oh, yeah. 
Which, it was a parody of a presenter with technical inexperience at a community radio station. Yeah. Oh well, I mean, I've we've done things on we've done a couple of blast FM episodes and get this, I have to say. Oh. But um, you know, when mics have been off, but uh, that was just based on um, a community radio show that I used to hear in, in Melbourne, where they would just constantly have the wrong mic on. <laughs> So you would hear the guy who was who thought he was on here would be way off mic going, and that was Yola Tango. And then the guy who who thought his mic wasn't on was on, and you just hear him breathing and <laughs> saying, whispering to the producer, and this would go on till eventually someone would call up and tell them on here, crazy mics aren't on. And I remember the, 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 there was a guy who called up once who was locked out of the building because he didn't have his Skype <laughs> card, so he had to call up on air. So a lot of the things in that Blast FM stuff is just actually what I would hear on air. <laughs> well, my, my initial goal with um, the green room was to prove that sketch wrong, and in many ways it's still the goal. But um, well, I don't even pan- I mean, I, if I panelled our own show, it would pretty much sound like Blast FM. That's why I have a professional doing it. Uh, what's the, oh, what's his name? I can't remember. Richard Marsland. Oh, of course, of course. Right for Rove is actually from Adelaide. He used to be the sidekick to Anne Wills over there. Oh yeah, that takes me back. Yeah, yeah. Those are the years. <laughs> yes, winner of the uh, Logie for most regional personality every year, if I remember. <laughs> Adelaide's regional, is it? Yeah. <laughs> you you do such a great voiceover voice. Oh, yeah. Well, that's because I used to do a bit of that for real. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping to retire. I I figure when I'm finally, you know, too out of fashion to do comedy, I'll just get Pete Smith's old job. Next on nine. (laughs) I'd love to be doing that. Yeah, I recall you've said once that you you could just make a living out of just doing voices. People make a very good living out of it. There's a lot more money to be made in voiceovers than there is in comedy, I can tell you. I just write that down. Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm not very good at doing voices, so I don't know how that's going to help me. In the car. The secret is practicing in the car. Well, what's your favorite voice to do? <laughs> My favorite voice to do? I love doing the old uh, the newsreel style voices. The ones where it's, you know, like the old newsreels from the 40s. Oh, yeah. Is that Tojo? And, um, yeah, so we do... Um, We've done a bit of it on Get This, where welcome to the fabulous world of the internet. We need that, you know, that where hundreds of people at any one time are emailing each other with information about this, their penis size. You know, just things like that. Just that old-style 1940s voiceover. I just love that. It's well, pretty irritating for people around my office, though. I imagine. You've done some film work in your career. A couple of years ago, you directed uh, the comedy Bad Eggs, yeah. which I enjoyed immensely. I thought it was very funny. Well, it's not for everyone. I mean, of, of everything that I've done, that has been the one thing that people really hate. Not everyone. Like Some people really like it, and some people like it, just abuse me in the street and tell me they want me to write them a check for $13.50. <laughs> But, yeah, it was an interesting... It was kind of an experiment. I wouldn't make it that way now. I think I was... The problem with that film, if you know, for people who think there is one, right. is that it was just too... Um, I was too worried. That was the problem. I was like, we, we, we can only do two takes of everything. You've got to understand, we were doing, like, a essentially a cop movie parody on $4.5 million. Now, that is a lot of money. I'm not denying that. But I remember the, a week before it came out, a film came out called National Security with Martin Lawrence and Steve Zahn, and it was described as a low-budget buddy comedy. <laughs> and I looked it up, and it was made for $45 million. So it was literally made for 10 times the cost of our film. And, of course, they had, you know, trucks hanging off freeways and things like that. We couldn't afford to do anything like that. So most of our film is people walking, sneaking around in underground car parks with, you know, mystery tapes and things. Um, 
I mean, I would love to have done a full-on Zucker Brothers style, you know, naked gun movie. Oh, they're brilliant, aren't they? But they cost millions of dollars. I mean, you build a submarine to crash through a wall for one shot. And I mean, that's, you know, that's $200,000 right there. (laughs) We just can't afford to, to make those kind of comedies. So I was kind of... Pretty much everything that happens in that movie was was uh, determined by the budget. But I think the, the what I would do now, because I made I've actually made a second film, believe it or not. Which, is that Boytown? Uh, no, no, Boytown is uh, a proper movie made by Kevin Carlin, which I'm only seen in in about three shots. Oh. But while that was being shot, I was shooting my own film, a mockumentary, if you like, about about Boytown called Boytown Confidential, and it was going to be like either maybe you know, 10 minutes or 20 minutes long for the DVD. And it, it, it runs 23 minutes longer than Boytown the movie <laughs> at this stage, 111 minutes. So it's technically a movie. And it was, you know, we had no money. I, was, I had a two-man crew. We could only shoot for 18 of the, the 25 shooting days. Somehow we shot 44 hours of material, all, almost all of it improvised. And it's got a really, it's completely the opposite of Bad Eggs. It's like, it's, it's rough looking. There's no script. Uh, you know, it's all been, a lot of it's been created in the editing. And I think it's the best thing I've done. So what I'd love to do, I, I probably won't get to make another film because Bad Eggs wasn't a, a hit. But, I'll, you know, if I did, I would combine the two. I would try and get something that looks like a proper movie but with much messier acting in it. I love Robert Altman movies, and you know I love the way he's able to create this slightly documentary feel in the acting, and I think that's what Bad Eggs really needed. There's a scene in it where um, they're talking about a four-coloured pen. You remember that? Yeah, yeah. That was just come up with on the day. It wasn't like improvised when the cameras were rolling. It was just we improvised that in rehearsal, and then we wrote a few extra lines for it, and then we put it into the movie. If I was making a film now, I'd probably try and do a lot more of that. That's what sort of Larry David does with uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, he writes the scenes, but he doesn't write any of the dialogue for it. And the Borat movie that's coming out is, you know, part... He's learned the mistake of that LEG movie, which was just too over-rehearsed, you know what I mean? Mm. So he's got, like, some scripted scenes and some doco scenes with real people and you know did you see a film called the 40 year old virgin i did i did wouldn't i guess most people wouldn't consider it a particularly innovative film but it had i just loved the tone of it where it just felt like a lot of the scenes were just improvised well apparently um uh, the chest waxing scene that was uh, that was unrehearsed that was yeah but even a lot of the dialogue scenes like when they first arrive at that home appliance store where he works and that guy's having that conversation about somebody rooting a donkey or something (laughs) and you go it you know it's lit if you had the sound down you would think you were watching an adam sandler movie but when you turn the sound up it's kind of messy and you go that couldn't have been scripted and then when you watch the you know the extra features on the dvd you realize yeah they 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 do the one that's scripted and they try out a lot of other variations very expensive way to make a film if you're shooting on film but I, I think that's the kind of future of comedy, really, in terms of movies, is is getting all this slight mockumentary tone and combining it with, um, you know, straightforward narrative. And it's actually happening in the new the new Christopher Guest movie, which is called For Your Consideration. It's again improvised, like the previous films, but it's not a it's not a mockumentary. It's not as though you're watching a documentary, like the other ones. So I think that's kind of the way forward. Hmm. I'm looking. For, I'm looking forward to seeing that. All that wanky bullshit. You don't want that on your program, do you? <laughs> my David Stratton now. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I'll, I'll move on. Here's a question out of left field. If you could eat any part of the human body as a cannibal, what would it be? Uh, 
you know, I'm just going to have to... I, I'd pretend that I was eating it. I'd be like Ed Cavalier, who I work with in that KFC ad, where he's not actually chewing the burger. <laughs> if you look closely, he's just... Nah, 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 nah. Oh, I've got, to, I've got to investigate that. Yeah, is that so I would just fake it. Oh, okay. Too much of a coward to eat human flesh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> radio promotion, then I'd be right in there. <laughs> Well, on your radio show, Get This, you mentioned that the Get This Wikipedia page is constantly getting vandalised by rogue internet users. Yeah, it is. And you actually encourage this as well. Well, you can't. I mean, you can't stop it. I've got on there and vandalised it a couple of times here at work. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you, well, we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to take ourselves too seriously. It's pretty, they're pretty funny, the vandalisms that I've read so far. I went there one day and someone had completely replaced it with Nickelback lyrics. <laughs> Have you got a strong-worded letter from the uh, the people at Wikipedia yet? No, our site got locked off, though. There was a padlock over it for about two weeks, and you couldn't change anything. I think it's still there, actually. Oh, I it's hope It's so. still locked. I hope not. Uh. Um, I, yeah, when I last looked on my own page, it, the, someone had claimed that I was uh, uh, that I played the dad in ALF for one episode. <laughs> The great thing about that is if you if you leave those bits of misinformation up there, eventually you'll get interviewed by journalists who think that's true. That's true. So when you were doing ALF, I know I'll get that at some point. Forget this. I believe um, you're in the process of putting together an audio CD featuring some of the, the best bits for the fans. Although this is according to Wikipedia, so I might be wrong. No, that is actually true. It's just because, basically it's come about because some client of Triple M hadn't paid their bills, so is, um, you know, instead giving us like a thousand CDs in contract. So they're going to burn a thousand CDs. So what I was going to do is I was just going to record, you know, because of my book that I did called Lolly Scramble last year, it didn't sell enough copies to to do a talking book, which is what I really wanted to do because I love talking books. And so I just re- decided to record one story from my book as a talking book and, and put that out as a CD just to give away to people who call into the show. But it only went 20 minutes, and I went, hang on, we should, we should almost do a whole album. And our problem on our show is that we, just, we can't do anything by halves. The podcast at the moment is like an album every week. So I'm just, um, yeah, we're trying to put, just it'll just be like a thousand copies, and it'll just be mostly for people who call in. We're not going to be charging money for it or anything. Give, yeah, giving it away for free. Yeah. All right, well, I'll uh, got to call in, okay? <laughs> okay. Just think what animal you'd like to steal from the zoo. Oh, I'd have to call it, because I'm in Adelaide, I'd have to call in when you're not actually on the air here. To... All right. Yeah, oh, that'd be complicated. Well, maybe it? by next week they've moved us again and uh, you'll be able to. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> in your early career, you did a bit of stand-up comedy. Do you, th- do you ever get the urge to get back on the stage and yeah, do some live I, entertainment? I try and do... I have this rule that... If you want to stay in the stand-up comedy union, you've got to do at least five gigs a year. So I try and make myself go down to some, you know, whatever pub's doing tryout nights and just keep my hand in. But I like doing it. But the problem is that I think it's something you've got to do full-time. When you do stand-up comedy, you hate what's called the weekend stand-up. You know, the guy who has a TV show and a radio show and does a gig every, you know, month. Can you think of an example? Uh, yeah, but I, I won't say it on air. <laughs> All right, that's fair enough. <laughs> but you probably guess. Yeah. There's um, you you um, yeah. So whenever I've done stand up, I did a I did a chunk of it in the early '90s, and then I went back to it again in the year 2000. And what I like to do is just do nothing else and just be the you know just do stand up and not be distracted by other things because it's you've you, you got to do it properly, I reckon. Mm. But I, I yeah, I want to get back to it at some point. But I've, you know, I've got Nickelback songs to play. <laughs> I 
thank you very much for coming here in the green room. Um, how's the green room compared to the many other green rooms you've no doubt been in? I've been in a lot of gr- uh, green rooms, and there's usually a lot more cocaine. That's all I'll say. <laughs> well, I suppose you can't see what's on the desk here. <laughs> well, good luck to you all. Uh, I'm a big fan of student radio. Um, it, apart from anything, you're not likely to hear foreigner at any point. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks, David. No problem. Thank you, Tony. Cheers. All right, catch you later. I've been waiting for a girl like you. Oh, sorry. There you go, Tony Martin. Uh, great guy, cracks me up. Hey, you know, when I was um, looking through the old the old unedited files for this and putting it together, I came across this, which I'd completely forgotten. Um, after, usually, you know, when you interview someone on radio, when your interview's finished, you ask them to record a couple of IDs for the station. So you can play that and make it seem like the station has these famous people just hanging around all the time. So I asked, I asked Tony if he wanted to record a couple for student radio. And he did a couple of straight ones. And then he did this one. Hello, this is John Howard, who's saying that you people at Flinders Uni Student Radio, Radio Adelaide 101.5, whatever that nonsense is, uh, good luck, because when I finish, there won't be any student radio. None at all. There'll just be uh, a recording of the Don's batting average playing over and over on this frequency uh, with occasional interruptions from Max Bygraves. <laughs> uh, student radio doesn't actually exist anymore. Well, uh, Tony Martin is uh, hanging around still, I think. I think he's written a couple of books. Oh yeah, he did um, The Joy of Sets in 2011 on uh, Channel 9, which I thought was fantastic, and you can still watch it on YouTube. So check that out. It's like a TV review show. Fantastic. Uh, with Ed Cavalier as well from, from Get This. Well, until the next installment of me talking to famous people, I'm David M. Green, and I'm famous. If you're also a famous person and would like to buy lunch for David M. Green, email davidmgreen at davidmgreen.com.